What's the most common question uh, you ask at a cash register at a store? Scream it out. Can I pay with credit? Okay. Anybody else? Most common question you ask at a cash register. How much? Anybody else? What's the return policy? What's the return policy? Have you, ever, <laughs> have you ever asked that question? Like, is it 10 days, 14 days, 30 days? Can I try it and bring it back? Can I use it? Uh, ever book a hotel and then what you, look, you make sure you look at the cancellation policy at the end? Like, is this like, can I cancel the day before? Can I cancel three days before? How can I, uh, you know, have some options here? There's, I think one of the biggest questions in our culture, and we're starting off today just thinking about this question. One of the biggest questions in our culture is this. When can I opt out? It's a big question. When can I opt out? We do it with purchases. We do it with school or courses or work or other things. And I think that something that's happening in our culture that we value Uh, More than some other things, it seems, is options. Our culture values options. We like to know that we have options. There was a New York Times uh, editorial piece called The Age of Possibilities. And uh, the writer, David Brooks, speaks about a shift that's happened over the last couple of generations. And he describes it like this. He says, at some point over the past generation, people around the world entered into what he calls an age of possibility and have become intolerant of any arrangement that closes off their personal options. That somehow in our culture today, what people are most interested in is, do I have other options? And it's interesting that he writes this article, not just generally, but he actually writes it in the context of marriage and family. Um, Over the next few weeks, we're starting this series, and it's called One... And we want to discover, you know, what, what is the wisdom of Scripture for marriage? What is the w- wisdom of Scripture for relationships? And one of the reasons this is coming up is that it's not hard to notice that there are at least uh, a percentage of marriages that struggle to thrive in our culture, struggle to thrive in the kind of life that we're presented with or sometimes forced to live into. And some struggles are little, and some struggles are very heavy. Some struggles have caused marriages to fall or fail. Some struggles people have walked through and come out the other end. I think another reason uh, to walk through this series is many single people in our culture today don't have a healthy view of what marriage is or can be or should be or could be or what to expect. And it seems that one of the underlying themes in culture is we're a culture that loves options. So it's hard to consider Um, just understanding faithfulness, long-term commitment, demands on a relationship. And marriage often hurts, sometimes falls under the pressures of these demands in our culture. Um, So today we're going to kick off this series, and and what I promise you is that over the next few weeks it'll get more practical, and today we're going to start to build this foundation. But culture has strange messages about marriage. I don't know if you ever heard Chris Rock was asked about this. He says, people have two choices in life, be single and stay alone, or get married and be bored. That's what what his choice is. I, I, I disagree with him. People would laugh in an audience when he says it. I think there's a better vision of marriage. I think there's a better vision of relationships. I think there's a better vision of singleness as well. Um, because singleness is also a valid vocation that the scriptures actually support, uh, as well. But for the next few weeks, we'll be jumping into marriage. I've been married for 16 years. 
And it hasn't been a perfect marriage. It's been a great marriage. Nothing's perfect. Uh, I, I know that after 16 years, I can tell you that very often I've had to re- or clarify my vision for marriage, my understanding of marriage, um, my understanding for the purpose of marriage, because whether it's myself, my own sin, my own brokenness, or the culture around me, often causes me to get blurry with what a vision of marriage is meant to be like. Marriage can be amazing, but there's so many voices that distort its purpose. There's so many voices that distort its purpose. Whether it's skimming through marriage magazines and trying to live up to that expectation of that day, whether it's talking to co-workers that just you know, in, when anybody even thinks about marriage, they, they tear it down. Whether it's some unfortunate, um, you know, stories and feeling the reality of the difficulty of marriage in our culture, I think marriage needs, you know, um, a refresher on vision uh, in our culture. And so today we're going to kick off uh, just thinking about this statement and then jump into the scriptures. The first uh, just idea, thought is, a vision for marriage starts with a promise. Now maybe you're thinking, well, that's kind of Normal, you said promise, vows. But what we want to do is kind of build over the next four weeks. And today we just want to start with this simple idea that a vision for marriage starts with a promise. And we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 2 and uh, get a glimpse of what the scriptures see as this initial idea, initial vision of marriage. If you've got your Bibles, it's Genesis chapter 2, verse um, 15. It's part of the creation account and the creation story in the first book of the Bible. There's more here that's happening outside of this relationship, but we're going we're gonna to tease out uh, some important parts. And so we're going to just read about 10 verses, verse 15 to verse 25, and then, uh, and then jump into it. So we're jumping right into the middle of the story. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we pause um, to really invite your wisdom, your revelation into our hearts and our lives for this scripture for the specific season of life we're walking in. God, we long for you to intersect us exactly where we are today and in this season. And we want to just tell you that we trust you from the beginning how your spirit's going to work in us uh, and give us grace to respond as you desire. God, we pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Hey, Terry, just a little bit more on my mic. Thanks. I'm picky this morning. Sorry about that. So, so here's, here's this text. It's, it's in the context of this incredible creation narrative that we read in Genesis 1 and 2. We, we get this sense, if you read through these first couple of chapters, these first two chapters, God's vision for the world, God's intent for humanity, God's desire for creation. And if, you, if we would jump back to Genesis chapter 1, we would read at one moment just a few verses where it talks about how God created man, humanity, man and woman, in his image. And he created both of them to reflect his image. Together they would reflect the likeness of God. And as we jump into chapter 2, like we just did, what we get here is we, we get to unpack God's vision for humanity a little bit further. As we, we see uh, the dialogue that happens and, and the story that, that's, that's shaped and written and the worldview that's really presented in this story and in this narrative. Some people like to call it the first wedding. Uh, wedding ceremony. Uh, we don't know if it's exactly that or if it's just part of understanding humanity, part of understanding for Israel what was, what was marriage, what was the intent for marriage as they lived among even the other cultures of the time. Uh, we can say just looking at it, if it was a marriage ceremony involved a surgery, vows, and a declaration. I don't know that anybody's marriage ceremony involved surgery, but uh, that's pretty serious. But when, when God creates Eve, when we read this story, Adam is left with this incredible discovery. He discovers that she is like him, that there's a likeness not only to God, but there's a likeness to one another. And that, that in and of itself is a beautiful thing to unpack. But the message is clear that, that there's a counterpart for humanity Unlike the animals, the animal kingdom is different. The animal kingdom is not necessarily created in God's image. Now, I'm sorry if you love animals. Some of you are thinking, when I cuddle with my dog, it feels so beautiful. And my cat knows exactly what I'm thinking. But, so animal lovers, you can insert rage here. But uh, I don't have any animals at my house. But here, here, here's the thing. There's this uniqueness that takes place in the creation of humanity that is different. And there's this description that happens as, as, as we read Adam's response. It's like this poetic response to what's, what he understands and what he discovers. There's this deep union that occurs in this ceremony, almost like vows. And he says these words, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What we have here is what's understood in Old Testament times and even the times of the era, a covenant language. When a covenant would take place between two parties, or two people, or even two nations, and covenant language is written all over the Old Testament, this covenant between humanity and God, but even between people at times. And often a covenant, they would say a covenant was cut, uh, because there was something of, of two people or two entities coming together. And what we have in this response from Adam, this, almost this poem written out, is covenant-like language. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. And we begin to discover just the beginning of God's vision for marriage. It's a partnership based on a promise. Next week we'll talk about partnership, but today we'll just focus on promise. It's a partnership based on 
a promise. And verse 23 and 24 is key. As we, as we read this poem, this expression, the, the, these words of Adam, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this covenant leads to something. And what it leads to is an incredible description of a union between a man and a woman. And it's this description. They will become one flesh. They will become one flesh. That's a, that's a heavy word when you think about that word, one flesh. It's the word ekad. When you put that word together with the word flesh, one and flesh, you get this fusion together at the deepest level. Whenever I'm sitting in premarital counseling with, with some couples, we often take a whole evening and then it comes up over the course of our weeks together what does one flesh mean? How do we unpack one flesh? How will you go back to what this means to be one flesh? Because that whole image, that whole description of a marriage is so vital. It's, it's the foundation moving forward. And as the author says, after this poem, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, then he says, that's why a husband leaves his family and is united with his wife. The purpose of this, the purpose of why someone leaves their family to be united with another leads to this, this promise or this reality, which is called one flesh. That word united with is really powerful. You read it maybe united with an, another old English versions use the word cleave, and it kind of sounds good with leave and cleave. But regardless of, of, of the sound of it, the word really means to be glued to something to be united with something. To actually, some ways of describing the word is to be grafted into something. I don't graft plants, but I have no people who do, and they do this incredible job of grafting one plant to another, and that continues to be a united tree bearing fruit. There's something about being glued to, being grafted to, that's the understanding of what it means when the author says a husband leaves his family to be united with, glued to, grafted into his wife together becoming one flesh. And what's happening here, which is so mysterious in some ways, is this new relationship is being formed. This new covenant relationship is being formed. In the ancient world, families held a covenant type of relationship. Family is a covenant type of relationship. You tend to not leave each other. You, you stick together. And especially in the ancient world, family and extended family was basically what you lived for in your whole life. And so you've got to imagine how, deep seat, how deeply rooted this understanding of family is and covenant within family that then the description of marriage, and as Israel's hearing this even later in post Exodus days as they're reflecting on what it means to be God's people and what marriage means. It's like, oh, somebody is actually leaving one covenant relationship. Now, not fully. We don't tell anybody to leave their families, but Natalia's like, I left my family in Colombia. She's from Colombia and I know she misses them, but she didn't leave them fully. She still loves them. They love each other. But here's the idea. Imagine you leave one covenant relationship. You're starting another covenant relationship. This new relationship is being formed in marriage. And the best word that I can just think of to describe it is a fusion begins to occur. A fusion begins to occur. At first, it doesn't feel like that. Uh, for several months and years, the fullness of that doesn't always take place. But the foundation of it, the vision of it, the promise of it is to be fused together as one. Now, I was thinking like, okay, here's Israel listening to this after when it was written, 
trying to understand their own marriage relationships. I was thinking, well, what was the, what was the context of the time? Like the era? Like what, what did the other countries, nations, um, cultures do? And so I, I tried to get a glimpse of ancient Near Eastern culture and, and their understanding of marriage. And there were some similarities. But one of the things that describes ancient Near Eastern culture and marriage is often almost like a business arrangement. Uh, that, that, there's a picture that will come up in a second. I think, yeah, there. That's, that's imagine that's what would be considered a marriage market in Babylonia. So there was this understanding in the ancient Near Eastern world, even though we say, oh, if family and marriage could be like it was for centuries and centuries, here's this understanding of, of almost a business arrangement, like a, like a property happening in marriage. Marriage and slavery were distant cousins in the Near East, ancient uh, culture and in that world. Uh, definitely in that culture, and even sometimes in other cultures, there was money exchanged for a bride. And, and so what was happening is, is as much as there was love, there was this idea that, that a bride was purchased and almost had similar rights to property. Now, property was respected in that time. And so you have this, this business idea of marriage in that culture. In fact, if, if, if the, the family wasn't able to, or if the couple wasn't able to have a family, or some other things were not right, at times the man would say, I, I want my money back. It's sad. It's really sad, but that's, that's just the reality of the time. So family was this big value for them, stability, uh, the economic well-being that a couple could produce together. So think about that for a second, and think about the difference of what we just read in Genesis. This is why a husband leaves his family, his covenant relationships to be glued to, grafted into, fused with his wife. And they will become one flesh. Now maybe some of the transactional things possibly still took place for God's people Israel. But there's a a unique difference here to the world around them. There's a unique difference here. This, even just inserting this word, they will become one flesh. They will not just become business partners. They will not just become uh, family procreators. They will not just become an economic team for their, you know, for their future life. No, they will become one flesh. A new fused relationship will take place. That's not merely about family, not merely about economics. There's a fusion of two lives. And that is so different how God's people were being shaped by this text and understanding God's vision for marriage in relationship to the world around them. So God's vision for marriage in the ancient world was categorically different. But think about this today because this this also fits a little bit of what we understand today because some people will say, well, marriage, like the goal of marriage is a traditional family. That's maybe a traditional view. And in a modern view, we might say, well, the goal of marriage is happiness. I, I get married to get, be happy. Or traditionally, I get married to start a family. Those two things are not the full vision of marriage. Traditional, it's family. Modern, it's happen, happen, happiness. And, and they're not bad goals. They're okay. But those two things are both a pro- product of marriage. 
And especially with happiness, happiness is a product of a healthy marriage. It's not the goal of a healthy marriage. It's the, the, the byproduct. And too often, either of these, whether it's family, traditionally, happiness, modern, if these two things don't happen, sometimes people check out because their vision for marriage is not God's, God's intended purpose. God's intended vision for marriage. And so here's these two words I want us to just think about as we start this series off. And it's this word. Consumer, a consumer relationship compared to a covenant relationship. A consumer understanding of marriage to a covenant understanding of marriage. Now, as I describe these two, please don't start thinking in your mind or maybe some of the things you've gone through or maybe if there's been marital breakdown in your life, start pegging, I had this idea, this idea. What, what we want to get to is really the, the idea, the vision that God has in the scriptures. But, but think of consumer. Consumers like, you know, th- this will last until the vendor meets my needs. That, that's consumer. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, you know, if this and this happens, I'm cool with this marriage. But if it doesn't, I'm going to break this marriage and I want money back. In today, it's, does he or she fulfill my desires? Does he or she make me happy? Does he or she give me pleasure? And if that doesn't happen, then I'm going to leave as well. Sometimes when we think of consumer relationships, it's, it's you know, a consumer is, I will, I will use this until it fulfills my needs and, or until a better thing comes up. Until a better car comes up or a better house or, you know, a better idea or a better job. And there's no sense of obligation to stay in the relationship. So in, in a consumer idea, the needs become more important than the relationship. The needs become more important than the relationship. I just bought a printer at Staples and I wanted a Wi-Fi printer I, because all of us have to print in the house. And I've had offers. I'll give you my printer and this, and it wasn't Wi-Fi. And I'm like, I just can't keep plugging in and out all the time. And when I'm gone and my computer's not there and my son has a project, they freak out and they call me and I don't know what's happening. So I said, we got to get a Wi-Fi printer. So I, I was at Staples for something and I saw that there was this Wi-Fi HP for sale. It was a great price. And, and I, I'm a laser type printer. But this sales guy convinced me that this inkjet was okay. So I, I bought it, you know, against my inner convictions. And so I bought it and uh, took it home. It works, but it, it was still an inkjet. And, I, and then, so what happened was, is I had this credit note in my pocket when I was buying the printer. I forgot to use it. It was like 30 bucks. It wasn't just two or three bucks. So I said, I'm going to go back and, and just see if I can get the credit note inside the bill and whatever. And yes, I'm frugal that way. Sorry. But so, so here's, <laughs> so here's, so then, but when I'm in Staples, I see there's a, another HP printer, laser, wireless, on sale that week. I'm like, oh, man. So, so I'm doing this transaction, and, and then I'm asking another guy who's you know, good with this stuff, and he said, well, actually, you know, laser does last you long. And I'm like, I knew that. That's why I stick with laser. So I said, How, what's, what's my return policy? What's the return policy here? So you got 30 days. Even if I opened it up, yeah. Even if I used it, yeah. I'm like, okay, uh, how long is it on sale? So now in my head, I realize I'm a consumer. I mean, I'm buying a printer and I'm going to go back and bring back my inkjet and buy a laser because that's what I wanted. That's a consumer relationship. We do this in other parts of our world. Unfortunately, it happens in relationships. Unfortunately, it takes place in marriages. Tim Keller writes this in, what, in a great book on marriage, if you ever get the time to read it called The Meaning of Marriage. He says, when relationships appear to require more love and affirmation from us than we're getting back, we cut our losses and drop the relationship. 
That's a consumer relationship. A covenant relationship is very different. Instead of needs being more important than the relationship, the relationship becomes, takes more priority over immediate needs. A covenant relationship, you walk into the relationship viewing a binding covenant. It doesn't mean that it might never not work. I understand that. We, we live in a world where some marriages have not worked. But covenant relationship is moving into a relationship with the vision, this is a binding relationship. The relationship will come first before the immediate needs of the individual. Where love is not merely a feeling, but love is a commitment and love is action and love is working it through. And so what you have then, when you work through a covenant type of relationship, you begin to see the relationship differently. Now, some people say, well, man, that sounds rigid in our culture. Because we're so used to, in so many other parts of our life, like me at Staples is, you know what, I don't have use for this anymore. This is not meeting my needs anymore. This is not great. We're, you know, this, is, this is giving me struggles. So we should just change. I think about parents, you know. Parents that walk through a marital struggle. And some families that end up um, splitting apart. Isn't it amazing that the parent will, will not break the covenant relationship with the kids? So what happens is, is there's a broken relationship among the spouses, but the parents never viewed their relationship with their kids as a consumer relationship. They always viewed it as a covenant relationship. I will never, I will never let you go. I will never let you walk alone. I will stay with you. And it's, it's fascinating that in the same household, we can view one relationship one way and other relationships differently. When the unfortunate casualty of divorce takes place, um, the child continues in a covenant relationship, often with the parents. And um, that's because we, are, we, in, we, in, we intuitively know the difference between those relationships. We intuitively know the difference. And what's happening in our culture is that freedom is obviously important, but maximum personal freedom at the expense of commitments is hurting our culture and hurting relationships. That same author of the New York Times says, the age of possibility is based on a misconception. And he says, people are not better off given maximum freedom to do what they want, but they're better off within the commitments that transcend personal choice. Now, if you just take that one line out of context, it might sound inhibiting, it might sound rigid. But isn't it true that we intuitively know that there's some things that we hold on to, regardless of how much sacrifice it takes, regardless of, of, of what it means for us, regardless of the difficult journey ahead? I mean, parents would rather sleep the night than wake up to their kid who has a fever for the third day, right? Now, if, I, if, if we're talking and you find out my kid has a fever, and then you say, what did you do? I say, well, you know what? I had three, four hours more work to do, and uh, I just kind of let the fever burn. And you're like, Dave, are you crazy? What, what are you doing? And I say, well, I mean, I had to finish my work, or I was super tired. It was 11 o'clock at night. I know he was frothing at the mouth, but... Right? No, but you, you would intuitively say, like, what's your problem? Like, isn't, why would you take your immediate need for sleep, finishing your job, doing whatever, at the expense of 
of this relationship, right? Think about even in the world of art and how, how people, musicians and craftsmen, pour into their craft. Think about a pianist who will play, who will practice seven or eight hours a day, and their friend comes and says, hey, why don't we go and play some video games? And they're like... They're free to do what they want, but they, they have made this commitment to this life and they say, I'm going to build my craft. We'll play Halo 3 later tonight or something, you know? We intuitively know that there are, there are relationships we have, commitments we've made that transcend our personal, maximum personal freedom. And we choose that, those paths that sometimes limit our freedom because there's something greater in the journey and the destination. We choose that path because we know that there's meaning there. We know that there's value there. We know that it's right. So let me just bring this back to a marriage covenant. We read this incredible poetic expression. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. Imagine, here's Israel, as they read this, they're understanding something very significant about their spouse. It's not a property relationship. It's not a business relationship. In fact, the language here is very close to family. So if something happens to to my family, my next of kin, my next blood relative takes care of my family. There's this kinship relationship. And what, what Israel was starting to understand about family and their spouse is that the spouse assumed the bond of family. The spouse assumed the bond of family. That's what covenant means. And when you read one of the most romantic writings in the Bible from Song of Solomon, chapter 8, listen to these couple of verses. And it, it reflects this, this kind of relationship. The writer says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It, it burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. Eugene Peterson um, translates one of these phrases saying, Love can't be bought, love can't be sold. It's not to be found in the marketplace. So vision for marriage begins with a promise. Because marriage is a covenant that fuses two people into one flesh. One flesh is not sentimentality. One flesh is not like, you know, rosy-colored experiences all the time. One flesh is not sameness because it's not two exact people coming together to be one. It's two different people. But oneness, if I could just bring it down before we unpack it over the next few weeks, is oneness is committed to the good of the other. Oneness is committed to the growth of the other. So when this new relationship gets forged and this new relationship gets fused together and starts to grow, one of the, one of the, the promises in that is, I'm committed to your good. I'm committed to your growth. Just think about those two things. I'm committed to your good. I'm committed to your growth. Neither of us are like property here. Neither of us are a business arrangement. We are committed to each other's good. We're committed to each other's growth. And then this gets played out in decisions. This gets played out in finances. This gets played out in sexuality. This gets played out in work, in family, in leisure. Now, of course, man, when we look at our world, the promise is not easy. (laughs) 
That, that sense of covenant is not easy in our world because what it does mean, irregardless of how, of how amazing a marriage could be, what that promise means is I'm dying to myself for the sake of a new life. That's why, the whole, that's why even in the theme of Scripture, we see God using marriage as a metaphor for a relationship with us and Him. Why even throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, there's this metaphor of, of marriage used for our relationship with Christ and our relationship with God. There's something so beautiful about that. But there's also, we know, as we come to Christ, we die to ourselves because we know new life is, is ahead. And there's a sense in that promise that someone is departing years of determining their own life on their own terms and joining a new life on each other's terms. There's, there's decades of independent control. Whether you got married in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s, you just passed two decades plus and you have your own ideas and you have your own ideologies and you have your own preferences. So the promise is not easy. It's grafting a life into another. But the promise can actually be freeing. Now I understand when I say that, I, I really feel the weight of this because there's people in our community right now today that are, have, have felt the brokenness of that promise, have felt the, the hurt of a broken promise, have had that promise broken from maybe the other side, have fallen under the weight of, 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 of our culture, of sin, of whatever. So I, I, I feel that burden as we even share this, but I, I really believe as we look at this vision of marriage, the promise can be freeing because the promise means you've decided on a future together. That when you've made the covenant promise to your spouse, you're saying, nothing will deter me from our life together. Um, in other words, you won't be swayed by the whims of the stuff around us. My job, the economy, the next fad, the guy or girl at the office. I will not be swayed. We will not be swayed by this. You've made a commitment to do life together and this vision starts that way. And so you're free to live that covenant life. It's really freeing because you've now committed to this life moving forward. And when you weigh the options, you weigh them together and not separately. And, so, and God says, I believe this in the creation account, we're going to end with this, when you choose this way, this vocation of marriage, and not everyone chooses the vocation of marriage, but when you choose the vocation of marriage the way he created it to be, it can be good. That's the word God uses when he creates in Genesis 1 and 2. This is good. This is good. This is good. But the vision starts with a promise. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at, well, what is... This vision moves to partnership. This vision moves to uh, protection of that. This vision moves to the practices. We're going to get practical with this. And so, so this is the foundation. But as we move forward, you know, don't start thinking about all the ways that maybe we can do that. We're going to slowly walk through this. But let me just say this. Uh, if you're here today, you're married. And I just encourage you to ask the Lord. Say, Lord, would you, would you give me this fresh view of marriage. Will you, I just want to ask your spirit to, to show me, lead me, penetrate these truths in my heart. Maybe you're here today and you're in or just out of a broken marriage or you're in a second marriage. We believe that, we believe that God um, is a God of grace and that there is newness of life possible. And that's a whole other topic. But 
if you're in that stage and you're actually anticipating the vocation of marriage again or you're in that, then you need to ask a very similar question, maybe in a little bit different way, but say, Lord, what is this vision of marriage you need me to see? Uh, what, you know, not getting too analytical, but saying, God, how can, you, how can you just expand my heart in understanding this? Maybe you're single and you, you're a single that, you know, maybe you're a single that celebrates singleness and you say, hey, this is my vocation and that's fine. There's biblical merit for that, that God fuels, can fuel a life like that. But maybe you, maybe you look towards marriage and your heart as we start this series is, God, give me a vision of marriage that, that is healthy, that I can see, that, 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 that I, I, can, I can nurture myself towards and be prepared towards. I can say this as we close. When I said I do to my wife, I had no clue of all the implications that it would have on me. I had no clue of all the demands that it would play. And I don't say that because of my wife, because my wife is great and, and, and I believe we have a good marriage, but you just don't know. You don't know what you don't know, right? You just have no clue. And uh, there's a, an incredible uh, Christian essayist, Lewis Smedes, and he talks about how, how, when, how when he looked back into his life and how he just appreciated the grace of his wife, and he said this, he said, my wife married five men. All those five men were me. Because he just realized how much he changed over time and how much she walked with him in those changes. And so I had no implications. I didn't know fully the demands that would place on me. I didn't realize the challenges I would face. But I also didn't realize the joy that would come through working that through. And um, so as we close today, we're going we're gonna to pray and we're going to just invite God to just help us move forward in this series together and invite him to speak to us as we, as we do that, regardless of the season you're in. So can we do that? Let's all stand and close in prayer.